Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 578 with my guest Michael Unbroken. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show is metalpod.com. And metalpod, the uh, social media handle, you can follow us at. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. And uh, for those of you that uh, are new to the podcast, um, If you want to fill out a survey, just go to our website and you can do that uh, anonymously. And that's a big part of the show. And I really appreciate those of you that take the time to to fill these out. This is, uh, as I said, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, a person who calls themselves a bat with a strawberry. And uh, they identify as um, pansexual and by gender about their depression, clinical depression. It feels like there's ink building up in my wrists and writing is the only thing that gets it out. About their ADD. It's like I'm all lightning and no thunder, all flash and flint spark, but no follow through. About their anxiety. My muscles haven't relaxed in over 15 years because I always have to be ready to run. About their PTSD, I'm trying so hard to rescue the version of me that went through the abuse, but my brain doesn't understand that time travel isn't real. About being a sex crime victim, my body remembers what I went through as a child, but I can't, no matter how hard I try to put the pieces together. About having albinism, if you've ever tried putting a fork in the microwave, going outside is basically just like that for me about having a dissociative disorder. It took me so long to realize not everyone floated up into their own brain when the world got too big and scary. 
about having multiple altars. Some days I doubt if my altars are even real, only for the little one to politely ask from inside my head, can we please get some gummy bears, please? About the pandemic, the worst part is seeing how little my life actually changed. Uh, snapshot from their life. It took me an embarrassingly long time to finally ask people if they also had pieces of themselves living as full, complex creatures in their brain that they could access at will. Because I thought this was so aggressively normal, it was not even worth talking about. Turns out that's actually not the case. And my partners have gone in on an 11 for 1 deal. Thank you for that. This is from the Love Survey filled out by fangirl she writes i love going to comic con type conventions and meeting the people who play the characters that bring me so much comfort it's like getting a hug from a mother figure i've always been a little fascinated by the the comic con uh not necessarily the conventions themselves but the the depth of passion that people have about that this is from the ask paul anything survey filled out by sunny And uh, she asks, I can't remember which episode it was, but you once described your hometown in Chicago as being racist and then proceeded to use the N-word with a hard R. Given your position as a white man, why did you think it was appropriate to use that word in its entirety? Uh, Ignorance, insensitivity. Um, You know, I, uh, in my mind, I thought because I was quoting a racist police officer, it was okay to uh, to do that, to make my point, and it wasn't. And um, if I offended anybody, and I'm sure I did, uh, I apologize. This is from uh, the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Hannah, and she writes... Uh, if you were to wear boxers, oh, and by the way, if if you know what episode that was that I did that, uh, let me know. I'd like to go back and uh, cut that part out. Um, Hannah asks, if you were to wear boxers with a print most representative of your inner spiritual state on a bad day, what would that print be? Mine might be Pigpen from Peanuts or the Creature from Alien, depending on the presence of rage or not. I thought about this one for a long time, and the the thing that popped into my brain was a manatee uh, trying to ride a scooter. This is from the uh, racism survey, and this is filled out by Ian, and um, he's in his 20s. And he was driving, he is Caucasian, and he was, uh, well, just read his his, uh, story. A few years ago, I was driving through downtown Rochester, New York, with my black friend who was in the passenger seat of my car. We were having a good night when the dreaded blue, red, and white lights lit up the rearview mirror. We were pulled over. The two officers came up to the car, one hand on the belt, but close to the holster. They began questioning me to ensure that I was safe and that the gentleman in the car wasn't threatening me or hadn't carjacked me. I asked what in the heck would even make him ask that. He ignored the question as I see his partner making my friend empty his pockets. 
His partner questioned him looking for anything she could. She kept questioning him about where he lived, why he was out in my car, why he was sitting the way he was in my car, telling him over and over to keep his hands up, even though there was no reason for him to even have them up to begin with as they were in plain view of the officer. The tactic her partner used was to talk at the same time so that neither of us could pay attention to the situation of the other. Anytime I tried to listen to what she was saying to him, he would keep pulling my attention purposefully away as she got more condescending in her tone. What they didn't know was that this man was one of the most upstanding citizens around who would later become a firefighter. We gave them our IDs and they don't even walk away or look at them. Just hand them right back. No glance at all. So I ask, uh, why were we pulled over? The real reason. The one officer walked away back to the car, ignoring our existence with a big smirk on her face. The one remaining said, because you were tailgating. I said, officer, you know there were absolutely zero cars on the road at all from this time. You were behind me. Uh, all the way until now. He looked dumbfounded that I knew my surroundings. He placed his hand on his holster and then let go, turned around and walked away almost as a silent warning not to question him further if I knew what was good for me. No answer. Nothing. Pure pure profiling of this black man, most likely because he and I were talking and he happened to be black. They didn't give two shits about me since I'm white. They were completely focused on him the entire time. And that's not the only time this has happened to him and many of my black friends. In fact, I've been in the car multiple times with him when it's happened. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I felt highly confused, concerned, and just altogether dumbfounded. It was one of my first in-person encounters with this type of police abuse of power. It really was an eye-opener to the reality my friends and so many others face every single day because they happened to take a breath today. How do you feel about it now? As we deal with such severe racism boiling over and being encouraged openly and celebrated currently, it shows how nowhere nowhere is immune from this. People hear stories like this and think immediately of a small-town movie setting in a red southern state, but this happened in Rochester, New York, the county seat of Monroe County. It's a blue progressive area. We had our first black female mayor at that point as well. We were making progress, but were we really? Policy-wise, we can make all the progress we want, but the people that those policies apply to need to also progress. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? A few short years after this incident I experienced, Rochester, New York, became the focus of the nation due to the police murder and cover-up of Daniel Prude, a black man who was having a mental health crisis. He and his family had done everything right. They called the mental health lines for assistance and took him into our psychiatric emergency department at the area's largest medical trauma center and a university that has some of the best medical schooling in the nation. They sent him home despite his family members advocating for him that he still needed help. He wasn't safe to leave. The man's brother took him home as he was discharged. Not even a few hours later, Daniel was dead as his brother had to call 911 because the mental health health crisis Daniel was experiencing continued and resulted in him running out of the house naked and in pain and scared in the streets. His brother called for more mental health assistance and instead the police showed up. They would proceed to place a hood over his head 
as he lay on a rain-covered cold ground, nude, suffocating, while they laughed as he died. They then covered up the murder for over six months until it finally broke. It could not it could have been any one of us. And since then, the racism in this area has also flown over and shown itself as it is and just how prevalent. We have so much work left to do in ourselves first and then in the rest of our communities. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I think, you know, my first, uh, my first instinct when somebody who isn't of color fills out the racism survey is to say, well, you know, uh, that's not as important as a survey filled out by somebody who is of color. And while that may be true, I think it's also important to read uh, the experience of people witnessing it, to, to bearing witness to it. Uh, because I think there are people out there who have, who think that uh, people of color are exaggerating or doing it to uh, move their, you know, quote unquote, cause forward. And um, uh, anyway, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, you're a good man, Bobby. And she writes, the summer of my junior year of college, I was taking classes, working, and living on campus. One day after work, it was a beautiful, sunny afternoon in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. I laid down on the grass in the middle of campus and let the sun shine on my face. I was at peace. My mind and body were quiet. It was the best 10 minutes of my life. I'd give anything to feel that way again. And then uh, she asked, would you consider survey-only episodes? We have done some some survey-only episodes, and we're probably due for another one soon. Um, but thank you for that, for that moment. Um, it's so odd how moments like that, how, how they can be so hard to access, and how, how clearly we remember them. Uh, I had a moment, I don't know, probably... 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I was doing some uh, winter backcountry skiing and camping in the uh, northern part of, uh, of California between, I don't know why I'm giving this specific information out, but it, w- it was a two-day trip on, on skis along the ridgeline between Mammoth Mountain and, uh, and June Mountain. And it, it was really physically demanding, but also so beautiful and serene because as you can imagine the middle of winter nobody's there you know you have to hack through ice to get drinking water um but the 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 memory that i think is going to stick with me for the for the rest of my life was we set up camp after a, a long day and i was totally exhausted and we were camped out in this little bowl uh, on the top of a ridgeline so it was protected from the wind but there really was no wind and, and it had started snowing big big flakes just really gently falling and I went and uh, put on all my warmest gear my little down booties and I, I walked towards this snowbank and I just fell back in this big soft snowbank and 
it, it almost felt like I was floating and I was just looking up at these big snowflakes falling and there was no sound except for the sound of these big snowflakes hitting my hood. And I just remember thinking, man, there, there are so many experiences to be had if we can just get out of our daily routine and try and do them. And I felt my body change, at least temporarily in that moment. I felt something slow down in, inside me. But I don't know, your, your survey just reminded me of that. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, they are licensed in all 50 states. Um, they have a huge variety of counselors that you can choose from. If you've never tried online therapy, I've been doing it for years, and I'm a big fan of it. Uh, you know, as I've shared the last couple of weeks in a row, my therapist and and I, uh, her name is uh, Heidi, and we've been working through the way that childhood trauma affects how I view the world, how I view myself, the tendency to keep my life small and not take chances, the kind of negative self-beliefs that I continued to believe are are true uh, because it, it affects a lot of things, including uh, my productivity. But uh, if you're interested in trying uh, BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And uh, just fill out a questionnaire, and they'll give you a list of uh, potential counselors to choose from if they feel they have one that is a good fit for you. And then you can uh, get the ball rolling in under 48 hours, and you need to be over 18. That's betterhelp.com mental. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
And then finally, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey uh, filled out by Susan, who describes her anger issues, I pulled a gun out on my therapist. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live... Fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I am here with Michael Unbroken, and that's that's a last name that you gave yourself because fuck your fuck your stepfather and his last name. Right? Yeah, well, and my father too, whom I've never met, so yeah. whom I'm named after, and I was just like, I don't I don't want that in my life. So we know right away, great childhood. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Peace. Yeah, I mean, it was as bad of an ideal of a childhood as you could have. <laughs> I mean, let's start off with the, your your mom, drug addict, alcoholic, cut your finger off. Yeah. Yeah, but what did you do? Yeah, well, I was born. <laughs> <laughs> my my Yeah, my mom was a drug addict and alcoholic, and when I was four years old, she cut off my right index finger. And, you know, it's people always go, holy shit, how could your mom do that? And I'm like, that was a continuation of the perpetuation of childhood trauma. Her mom, my grandmother was not a good person. And so let me rephrase that. They were hurt people and hurt people, hurt people. And that became my experience. And, you know, I, I watch it took me, Paul, it took me a long time to get to this place in my life where I was like, I get it. There's a lot of anger, a lot of guilt, you know, all those things that carry with it. But addiction. Yeah. And and you look at it and you go, I could blame her for everything, but I, I wouldn't be here without those moments. And so I, I look at her life and I look at all of the chaos of my childhood, which I'm more than welcome to go as deep as you want to into. And today I get to impact the world because of those experiences. And, mm -hmm. and there's power in that. Well, let's let's get some snapshots. As, you know, as if uh, the finger isn't <laughs> isn't enough. In case that's not emblematic enough of uh, the the fucked upness. But you were raised in uh, Indianapolis. Yeah, so, Mormon. Yeah, born in in Indianapolis. Grew up a biracial Mormon. Um, How and, could that be challenging? No, no, no. Like you know, what's so crazy about it is like that to me is like the cliff note of the whole thing, right? Yeah. And my so my mother married my stepfather when I was six. He was super abusive. The kind of guy you pray is never your stepfather. I mean, he would kick the shit out of my brothers and I. The most dangerous thing I could do as a child was exist. Like there was nothing m that brought more pain than having opinion than breathing, than showing up. And so the the physical and mental violence from him alone, 
I mean, that that took about a quarter million dollars in therapy to work through. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so growing up in that household, we were constantly poor. We were getting evicted. We were getting our water turned off, our heat turned off, the gas turned off. I mean, freezing cold winters and brutally hot summers. And by the time that I was 12 years old, I lived with 30 different families. We were just getting kicked place to place. My mom was always in and out of rehab. Sometimes she would totally disappear, and I don't know where the fuck that she would go. My stepfather was an over-the-road trucker, and so sometimes he'd be home and sometimes he wasn't, which was so fucking terrifying because you never knew when he was walking through the door. And, you know, the, the really interesting thing about that is Living with all those different families, I, I got to see sometimes that there were really amazing people in the world. And it helped me a lot along my life to, I don't believe myself to be an optimist, right? But I'm a realist and I've seen people do really amazing things and really terrible things. And so it was really an interesting period of time because I'm eight, nine, 10 years old. I'm trying to absorb the world and see what's really going on. And it gave me some really incredible defensive mechanisms that have carried a lot of weight in my life. And so by the time I'm 12, my grandmother adopted me and you think that would be a godsend, but I'm biracial, black and white. My grandmother's an old racist white lady from a town in Tennessee you've never heard of. And so insert identity crisis. And I get high for the first time when I'm 12 drunk when I'm 13. And by 15, I got expelled from school for selling drugs. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with my life? I'm stealing cars, breaking the houses, hurting people, running with guns, running from the cops. And that was very normal growing up in that circumstance, in that situation. It didn't feel to be askew in any way. And I got put into a last chance program Still didn't graduate high school on time. And they basically hand me the high school diploma and like, you got to get the hell out of here. And so, Paul, I'm at this place in my life where now, so the year I graduated high school, there was this thing called the Harris Polls. And my high school is one of the worst high schools in America labeled a dropout factory. And I now was one of the most embarrassing kids in all of the country. It was almost impossible not to graduate from that school. But, Paul, I believed in myself, and I managed to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I found myself at 18 years old being like, what am I supposed to do? The only thing I had as a child that I wanted was don't die and become a Marine Corps scout sniper. That was it. There's something chilling about you wanting to be a a sniper when you were a kid. Well, I blame Tom Berenger in the movie Sniper. I just, I just sat with me for some weird reason. And so I found myself in this position where I'd hurt my knee my senior high school, couldn't pass MEPS, rock the ASVAB though, I could have gotten the job and I was stuck. And it was like, what am I supposed to do? So you were in the Marine Corps? I did not make it. No, because I could not pass the physical because of the knee injury. Gotcha. And so I was like, hold on. I love, too, that the guy missing his right index finger wanted to be a sniper. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Look, man, if you believe in yourself, anything's possible, right? And so I, I was thinking about the solution for poverty. I was like, what is the solution for poverty, for homelessness, for suffering? And I was like, it's gotta be money. What else would it be? Because the only thing I ever feel like we I hear is about money, my neighborhood, the community, my family, the schools. And so I made a declaration to myself. 
by the time that I'm 21, I want to make $100,000 a year legally. That legal part was so important, Paul, because I got family in prison for life. I've been in handcuffs. And as of today, my three childhood best friends have been murdered. Wow. And I was like, I know where I'm going. If I stay on this path, like it's game over for me. Right. And so I just started learning skills and I got a job doing what I thought people did. And I ended up becoming a general manager of a fast food restaurant, general manager in training of a fast food restaurant, had 52 people under me, just started learning. And I I was like, this is probably going to take me to that hundred thousand a year thinking like that's the thing that solves all the problems. Right. Right. And so I just kept learning and learning and learning. And then one day I'm talking to a friend. I'll age myself a little bit here on MySpace, mm-hmm. And he, he's like, hey, I got a job for an insurance company. I was like, what? Holy shit. That's a thing. Because the only thing I ever saw was strip malls and fast food joints and working in warehouses. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. And he said that to me. And I was like, that's the path. And so I just started getting better at writing resumes and learning and all these things. Next thing you know, meaning an office job or insurance, an office job, just in general, like, because that to me felt a million miles away. Like whatever that was, didn't seem real. Was there a kind of an epiphany when you saw what your future, if you didn't change was going to be, was there a moment or was it a gradual well, it was a lot of different moments, right? I, I, I knew that I was perpetuating the problem with drug culture in my own community. The same thing that eventually would kill my mom, right? I was stealing her Oxycontin and selling it to people. We were selling weed and nickel bags and, you know, little shit like that because it, and it wasn't about rims or jewelries or anything. Like a lot of times we were like, can we go get food with this money? Mm-hmm. Right. Can we fix our bicycles or the car that never works? And I was sitting and just watching all of the chaos of everything that I was growing up in. My my best friend, his brother got out of prison and he and I, we were all hanging out one night and he's like, yo, I got to go get some weed. So we're going to go to this guy's house. We were always going to some guy's house, Paul. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I don't know where we're going. Never met this guy. Somebody always got the line. Right. And uh, that was the first time I smoked a blunt dipped in embalming fluid. And I was like, what in the fuck am I doing? My uncle's in prison life. We used to go to Pendleton Prison just west of the city and go visit him every weekend when I was a little kid. Like I saw the path. The thing that really sparked that moment, the epiphany, if you will. So I'm a senior. My girlfriend calls me. She goes, hey, your name's not on the graduation list. I was like, fuck. Really? So I drive to school. I'm stoned, obviously. And I go up to Mr. Bush's class and away from him to come out. I'm irate, right? I'm angry, 18-year-old me, blaming the world. And uh, I go, how the fuck are you not going to pass me? And he goes, you need to understand something. I didn't fail you. You failed yourself. Because the first day of the semester, I walked up to his class and I go, I'm not coming to your class Ever. It's at seven o'clock in the morning. I'm selling drugs. I'm working some bullshit job at a Hollywood video. Like my grandma's in a coma. My, my mom is back on drugs. Like I do not care about high school. Whatever this is, I could care less. And he'd been teaching 20 years, man. He's seen it all. And he goes, look, man, check in with me and do homework. We'll figure it out. I did that zero times. Wow. And so I walk up to him and 
we have this conversation and Paul, he says, singularly, the most important thing to this day, anyone has ever said to me, he goes, what you need to understand about life is if you want something, you can't get by in your charms and your good looks, you're going to have to earn it. And that changed everything. I would dude, I was so embarrassed. You're talking about this epiphany I didn't need one. It was in real time. I got uninvited to every graduation party. My friends stopped hanging out with me. I definitely wasn't going to get any colleges. Like, and I was just sitting here and I was like, great, great. I'm everything that everybody told me I was going to be. And that hurt. And it was embarrassing. And it was the first time I realized like, holy shit, I do have to show up for myself. Even all the chaos and the abuse and the church shit and all everything, you know, being homeless, looking at the world through the scope. It was always like everyone around me was always blaming everyone. And that's what I did too. And I was like, it's not my fault. I'm not literate. It's not my fault. Like I have bad grades or I do all these terrible things. I'm blaming everyone else. And in that moment, it was just you know what it was? He believed in me. He said, you got to go out here and earn this shit. And it changed the trajectory of my life. And that put me in this position of trying to chase money legally. Now, let's be clear, that still didn't solve the problem because I land this job with this Fortune 10 company, no high school diploma, no college education. Like I'm in it, like I'm making six figures, driving a $65,000 car, having the time of my life riddled with trauma oh my god dude like it is so by the time i'm 25 headed into 26 i'm 350 pounds smoking two packs of cigarettes a day drinking myself to sleep and cheating on my girlfriends putting myself in these precarious situations doing this incredibly dangerous shit all the time and that's when i attempted suicide for the second time hold that thought right there two questions um what the fuck does embalming fluid do for your high? And I would like some moments from childhood, if you can remember some moments where you saw people who were inspirational or kind or showed you another, showed you the breadth of what humans could be capable of. Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. Um, embalming fluid makes you warp time backwards and <laughs> and i remember like we were, we were we go over this dude's house we're sitting and it's a puff puff pass situation paul there's like 16 dudes in this room and i'm like what is happening and you're watching i'm looking at people i'm like whatever's about to happen here is not going to be great and i like smoke this it comes around twice next thing you know like nine hours are gone it's like midnight i'm 16 i was supposed to be home hours ago and just for the next few days it's like i'm in la la land i'm having visions like i'm freaking out it was the craziest thing i didn't know we were smoking embalming fluid dipped blunt until after the fact because that's the quality of people i was hanging out with that's what my community was that was my brotherhoods and my friendships thinking like hey at least we're together they must love me and that's a dangerous place to be. And so in that, you know, and I, I look at, I, I love your question, actually. I've been reflecting about this a lot recently. And I think in every bit of darkness, there's still some light. 
you know, my, my love for, for music comes from my mom's love for music. Like I wouldn't have Queen and Jim Croce in my life without her. Fleetwood Mac, stuff like that, right? Michael Jackson. My love for food and travel without my grandmother and us watching your television show when I was a little kid. <laughs> she would come home after second shift mm-hmm. and get at home at like 10 o'clock at night and we would watch dinner and movie. Oh, wow. Right? And then we would watch Bourdain and we would do those things. And that gave me that love. And, you know, there's always a little bit of good in everyone, just like there's a little bit of bad in us, too. And I think the most beautiful thing in all of that was there are people are so giving like they really are. And I I think, unfortunately, the the easy side of the conversation is to always be mad at everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. And and that'll fill up your cup until it doesn't anymore. And then you realize it's actually poison. And I mean, the church would give us food. The school would take care of me sometimes. Like there was a big lots around the corner from my house on 30th and Georgetown. And my friend's mom worked there and she would give me food because she knew that I was so poor. Right. The guy at the little bodega a place called Karma Records around the corner from my house. I remember Karma Records. Yeah, man. Yeah. You'd, you'd have to be from Indiana to know that. Right. Yeah, or yeah. be in the area anyway. And, uh, you know, he'd catch me stealing CDs. He never called the cops on me, you know? So I think they're innately human beings are good. It's just the problem is, and, and this is what I believe to be true, that trauma takes your identity. And so you don't know how to be in the world because everything you understand is pain. And that was where I was for a very long time. And I leveraged that pain to burn down everything around me. And then one day you realize like, wait a second, Maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, the, the, the things that trauma leaves in its wake is so much worse than the incident or incidents themselves. It's uh, the anger that trauma leaves, whether we express it outwardly at others or inwardly towards ourselves, the, the negative self-beliefs that that come from trauma and we don't even realize it's driving the bus it's it's our normal you know no matter what the 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 trauma is whether it's getting your finger cut off or your mom looking at you and and saying uh do you really want to wear those pants you look a little fat uh in those uh i mean they're I, I I think it doesn't matter what the envelope arrives in that tells you you're not enough. Yeah. And, and the hard part about that, too, is it'll consume you. It'll fucking take everything from you. And then you find yourself at 18, 36, 72 years old, and you're like, I don't know how to be me. I don't know how to love or be compassionate or show up for myself or do the hard things. And that was, I think, the most difficult part of my journey was, look, I'll promise you this. You don't end up where I was at 25 years old with self-esteem, right? And, and that's what I understood. I, was, I remember distinctly, it hit me like a baseball bat to the face. I was like, I don't believe in myself. And that's... Your self-awareness is astounding, I mean, I'm 25 year olds are idiots. I'm sorry. <laughs> Compared to 
you know, when they become 40 and you get more, you know, life under their, I should say, are typically so unaware of their worldview and their view of themselves. It's, it's, it's kind of astounding that at 25, you were able to have these epiphanies. But I didn't do anything about it. Right. I, you know, <laughs> I, I think the seed getting planted is the most important thing. I, I agree. It's, it, trauma gets laid on in layers and I think it gets taken off in layers. Yeah. You know, I, I try to tell people all the time, like when you decide to step into this arena of healing, like you better buckle the fuck up because this is a rest of your life kind of game. Yeah. Right. And that's held so true for me because 12 years later, you know, I'm sitting here having this conversation with you, but at 25, 26, 27, it was like dipping my toes into trying to figure out all the chaos. Paul, you know more about me in eight minutes than people who knew me for 27 years. Think about that. I mean, I was so dissociated, such an emotional recluse, so shut off. And, you know, people often ask me like, well, why drugs and alcohol? Because it was easier than dealing with the pain. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why wouldn't I? Like, I look down at this finger every day and the discoloration and the skin grafts and the fact that I can't feel it. And I, I go, I could let that keep destroying my fucking life like it used to. Or I can make a decision and become the hero of my own story. And that was kind of the shift in my life. I just, I decided, I looked in, you know, I'm 25 years old. Heading into 26, I'm laying in bed. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm eating chocolate cake, smoking a joint, <laughs> and watching the CrossFit games. Like, dude, if that's that, not rock bottom, I don't know what is. That is so fantastic. And the only way that could have been worse is it was if you were watching a TV show called People Without Trauma. Yeah. Right, exactly. My trauma unfilled life, right? right? And I'm in this, I, I wake up, I get out of the bed and I go stand in front of the bathroom mirror. And I, to this day, I don't know why I did it. It just, I looked at myself. I didn't recognize my body, my face, any of the chaos around me. And I remember being eight years old and the water company had come turned our water off again. Blistering hot Indiana August summer day humid hot gross who were you living with i was living with my mom at this point okay and the water company comes and my mom is on the porch begging them hey i got four kids in here my husband's away again he's a truck driver please don't do this and the guy's like doing his job you know what i mean like i get it and we have this little manhole cover that's in our front lawn and my mom's like put your tell me put your hand down there and just turn it enough so it drips we don't got to tell them. And if we turn on too much, they're going to know, mm -hmm. right? That the meter. And so I do that. And then I go in the backyard and I take this little blue bucket and I walk across the street to the neighbor's house and I turn on the spigot on the side of their house. And for the first time in my life, I still water. And I remember in this moment, Paul, looking in the mirror and having that memory saying, when I'm a grown up, this is not going to be my life. And financially, it wasn't, right? But in every other way, I was still that hurt, lost little boy. And as I looked at myself in the mirror, I asked myself, and I'll never, this is the moment, I'll never understand why I did this. I said, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? 
And the response was no excuses, just results. And what that really meant, especially now heading almost 12 years later, 11 years later, excuse me, is very much about stop making excuses for your life. Stop blaming everyone else. Take ownership. Take accountability. Do difficult things. Reclaim your identity, your strength, your power. Become what you're capable of being. And that started this snowball process where it was, I got to go to all the therapy, right? Group therapy, men's group therapy, CBT, EMDR, Gestalt therapy, read all the books, go to all the conferences, get a coach, listen to the podcast again. And I, I told you this before we recorded, like your podcast played an incredible role in this healing journey for me because nine, 10 years ago when no one did this. I heard a conversation you were having, and again, I believe it was with Marie Bamford, and just being like, oh my God, there are people talking about fucked up shit? Cool. I don't feel so alone. And Paul, like the, the honor of being in this room with you, like I can't explain because of the impact that your effort has had on my life. And the same as which you probably recognize, but I know as someone who does this personally myself, you don't always feel it so close to home, but I mean, dude, I've listened to your show in Vietnam and Thailand and Mexico and New York city and LA while I travel the world and I speak and I teach and I coach and I write and I do all these things because it's like, even where I'm at in my life, like I still need the fucking reminder that I'm not alone because some days still hurt and some days still suck. But you still like the thing that I discovered was like, if I just keep going, one more step every fucking day, even though I don't want to, even on the hard days, even when I'm exhausted, even when I fucking hate the world because I still have those moments, even when I'm sitting there half a pint into fucking ice cream, I'm like, can I just show up tomorrow and do my best? Can I just show up and try to figure this out? And education has been such a big catalyst in this journey for me because that's the thing I didn't have growing up. Like school was like whatever to me. Well, I don't give a fuck about math. I'm trying not to die today. And today to sit here and to love it and to be studious and to be able to deliver and give that to other people, it's like that that's been profoundly life changing for me. And, you know, at the end of the day, I just I think about this. And I know that it's so like faux pas to say, but everything does happen for a reason and the shit that you do with it, the meaning you make of those experiences, that's what really counts because there is darkness in the world, but there's also again, light. And I mm-hmm. just, the one thing I just want to try to do every single day is I just look at my life and say, can I go to where I think I can be? You know, I, I agree w- with, uh, the, the sentiment that there can be meaning in anything in our, in our lives. Um, even the, the, the darkest of, of dark things. And those can be the things that connect us to other people. And yeah, it sounds like such a fucking cliche. Um, I don't know. Uh, I go back and forth on, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. I'm certainly not a, a, a opposed to it, but the thing that I know that I have control over is searching for the meaning, mm. especially in the things that are, that are painful. Um, what was it like learning to have self-compassion? The hardest thing I've ever done. What did, what did that look like? And, and talk a bit about 
the ways that the different types of therapy affected you or helped you? Yeah. You know, I I think finding self-compassion and empathy was the most difficult thing of this entire journey. Because the only thing I ever heard, like my my stepdad, while physically abusive, like really, the mental abuse was far worse. Mm-hmm. The 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 name calling, the belittlement, the putting down, and then like the enmeshment of my mother on the other side of the the weird like polar opposite of that, and then them combating each other all the time. It just like ingrained all these insane thoughts in my head. All I'd ever hear is you're not good enough. You're a piece of shit. You're a loser. That's why your real dad left you, right? And and no one loves you. You're a bitch. You're a pussy. My stepdad was so volatile emotionally that that probably crippled me way more than the other stuff. Mm-hmm. The physical pain was one thing, but you know, you find yourself in this position where, as I did, being like, everyone thinks I'm a loser anyway. I wet the bed growing up, and so I'd always go to school and smell like piss because our fucking water would be turned off, so it's not like I can shower or bathe. You know, it's wearing Goodwill clothes, and sometimes... I remember one time I got caught stealing from our lost and found in, like, sixth grade. Like, add that to it, right? And so it's all the emotional aspects of it carried the most weight, and, you know, I think about this a lot. What you think matters... Let me rephrase that. How you talk to yourself matters so much in the day to day. And so the only thing I was saying to myself for a very long time was, I'm a loser. I'm a piece of shit. This is what I deserve. Of course, my life sucks because why not? And coming through that on the other side, learning compassion first and foremost, I was the guy like if I spilled water, if I accidentally tore something, if I made something a mess, I would just destroy myself. You fucking idiot. Oh, dude, that's the easy part. Like that, it would be that and worse. It'd be all the worst things a human being can say to themselves. And I would find myself in this situation where like, I would just want to smash my face into a wall because I'd be so mad at myself over something as simple as like washing a pen in a shirt. You know, you go through the dryer, come out, your shirt's fucking blue. I would rip myself in half over that. And so when I got into therapy... And sitting across from just the most amazing people who are willing to sit and have these kind of conversations and take on this weight, you know, and I, I never actually stopped going to therapy. I started at the first time when I was in, when I was seven years old because I got molested. And so they were like, Hey, we're going to put you in therapy so you don't turn into an ax murderer. And you had to sit mm-hmm. there and I, I just learned to tell the therapist what I thought they wanted to hear. Right. It's just a behavioral pattern that you do for safety. Because I was like, if I tell this guy the truth, I'm going to get fucked up when I get home. And so... It was a family member? No, it wasn't. No, it was someone from the church, actually. I gotcha. And so I remember being in this situation and and feeling like if I tell the truth, God, this is going to be so bad. So I just learned to stop being honest. I learned to stop being honest with therapists, with friends, with partners, with myself, And so as I'm in therapy and I'm going through this process of really, it was learning. It was learning that these things that happened weren't my fault. It was learning that the things that were now transpiring, these behaviors in my life, they had causation and correlation. This shit came from somewhere. Mm -hmm. It was learning that it is okay to be kind to you first, 
to like having compassion for my life. It kind of turned into this thing where I was like, you know, yeah, can I go to therapy on time? Can I actually go to the gym or do yoga today or write in this journal or leave the job I hate or the toxic relationship or whatever it was and put myself first? I think that's the most difficult thing that we do as trauma survivors because we're so used to not existing. All right. Putting ourselves first feels insane. And it's like when you believe that you're a garbage can, who's going to want to go to a party? Yeah. You know, it's it's like it's just so much easier to to stay home and numb yourself, you know, or to lose yourself in someone else that makes you feel like you're not a garbage can, but not in a healthy way, like yeah in place of you being kind to yourself because you're going to burn them out. (laughs) Or if you're like me, I, I started bending who I was so that you would be in connection with me so that I didn't have to be alone. And so if you're like, I love this favorite music or this is my favorite food. I'd be like, me too. What do you know? What a coincidence, right? It was, I'll never forget. It was like 24. I went to a, like, uh, Kenny Chesney concert. I fucking hate country music, Paul. My my friend was like, hey, do you want to go to this thing? I'm like, internally, I'm like, no, absolutely not. I don't want to yeah. be the only person of color in Noblesville, Indiana on a Friday night. I promise you that. And I went anyway because I was like, that he'll like me if I go. And that was a thing. Like, where's self-compassion? Where's love and doing things that don't bring value to your life? And that's what I had to learn to say yes to the things I want to say yes to and say no to the things I want to say no to. And it's so hard to get in touch with that, especially when you're disconnected from your body. Yeah. It's so hard. My dissociation was so bad. Like I, I distinctly remember these moments of like watching myself in these incredibly precarious situations and just being like, what is happening right now? How did I get here? And like, it wasn't like I'd black out either. That's what's really interesting Mm -hmm. about this. I was very cognizant to the fact that my body was almost autonomic in these moments in which a normal person would look at them and go, you might want to leave right now because some dark shit's about to happen. And it was, you know, the greatest thing I think about therapy are these moments where you get clarity. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what it did for me, whether Gestalt was beautiful because I could do chair work and EMDR was beautiful because I could do that rapid eye movement and get back into my body. CBT was great because I learned how to stop walking down the street with a knife in my pocket. I'm six foot four two twenty. Most people aren't messing with me on the street, but that was such an ingrained behavior for survival that up until the time I was 28 years old, I always had my right hand in my pocket because I never knew. And the thing about therapy is you you get a place to have these conversations, to lay these things on the table, to bring truth to the reality. And I had had it all stuffed down for so long. I mean, for 15 years, I didn't cry. I didn't cry when my grandma died. I didn't cry when my mom died. I didn't cry when my best friend got murdered. I just, I became a robot. And now there's like this Adidas commercial with this old dude trying to break out of the nursing home and he runs and they won't let him out. And then the rest of the people in the nursing home, they like stop the guards. He puts on his shoes. He runs. And I'm like fucking in tears all the time. And it's like that's that's what therapy can give you. It can give you the option if you're willing to take it to discover who you are. And to feel both the good and the bad. Yeah. You know, the good news is – you know, if, if the support groups or the therapy 
give us tools and we choose to use them in those certain situations, feeling the bad isn't as bad yeah. as it as it used to be. And, and it can, we can actually discover meaning in it, which is was a fucking revelation to me. I just always thought bad is bad and mm-hmm. there's nothing. There can be nothing positive in it. It's just pain. And it's... It's amazing how we can be stuck and not know that we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And it fucks up our crystal ball. Our crystal ball. Oh, my God. That might be the worst tool that yeah. human beings that can thing, have. That thing's always breaking, man. It's, they use that. it's so worthless. <laughs> it is so worthless. It's so inaccurate. Always. Always. Yeah. But, you know, and that that's what's so wonderful about... I think coming through, and, and again, I, I'm a proponent of what I'm about to say. I will always be on this journey. I don't think that there's going to be a moment in my life where I'm not still going through the process of learning, of growing, of healing, of further becoming who I am. And I think that letting go of the idea that one day this is over has been so empowering for me. You know, one, I think one of the greatest things that my therapist told me were, we're sitting in his office and it's this, I'd moved to Portland, Oregon, and we're sitting in his office. It's a rainy, like, April day, and I'm pissed. I've been in this dude's office every single Wednesday at 5 o'clock for fucking three years. I look at him and go, I'm done with this shit, man. I don't want to be here. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see your stupid face again, right? And, and I go, when is this over? He goes, and and he just said the most profound thing to me. He goes, I don't know if it will be over, but you can show up for your life. I was like, all right. I acknowledge it. I accept it. I accept the reality that, I don't know if you're familiar with the ACE survey, but there's this thing called the ACE survey. Dr. Felitti, California Center for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente did a study in the early mid nineties about the long-term detrimental ramifications of childhood trauma as an adult. And they found that these 10 kind of standard questions could be a determining factor in a lot of different things. And most people answer yes to one of these questions. You know, were you ever physically hit or yelled at? Was a parent divorced? Was a suicide attempt in the home? Were you molested? You know, and then there's five more questions. Most people answer yes to one of those. And it's generally divorce, right? It's pretty common in this country. Well, I answered yes to all 10 of them. And statistically, when you look at that. And then you graduated high school? And, and then I graduated high school. And then they handed me the diploma. And, you know, and, and the thing about that was looking at that research and understanding the causation and correlation of trauma and just recognizing, like, for some people, you're going to have these moments, like, even if they're bad, it's really not even going to impact you. It'll probably be a thing in passing, or maybe not. I don't know, because everyone's very different. But for me, Paul, the fucked up thing about this whole thing is like, it's my truth. It's my reality. And eventually it will be my legacy. Right. But on the other side of healing it, of changing it, of, of moving towards the impact that I want to make in the world of trying my best and to end generational trauma in my lifetime through education. Because to me, I'm like, I don't ever want a kid to have a story like I'm telling you right now. Mm -hmm. And in the therapist's office that day where he's like, you have a choice to make, it just kind of catapulted me to where I am. And the the thought, too, the truth that 
you can own your story and take responsibility moving forward, not take responsibility for what happened yeah. to you, but that self-compassion around what happened to you is not mutually exclusive with taking ownership of your life and saying, I will no longer be a victim. It is now my responsibility to heal this trauma, even though it sucks that I'm not responsible for it being laid on me. That's one of the most unfair things in in life is that a gigantic mess was created that we had nothing to do with that we have to clean up and it, and that it's actually our responsibility to clean it up. Uh, I say all the time, Paul, like trauma is this. You have a house and you walk outside and there's trash in your front yard. Even though it's not your trash, it's still your house. I love that. Well, because I'm a litter bug, but (laughs) it's the stupidest. (laughs) But like, it's, it's true, man. Like you're not culpable. You're not culpable for the dark things that happen to you as a child. You cannot be responsible when you're six, eight, 12, fuck even 18 years old. You know what I mean? You're still to your point, young, you're an idiot. I'm going to call it. You you can be a little bit more kind about it. When I was 18, I was a moron. And then I think about too, when I'm 50, I'm be like, when I was 36, oh man, what did I know? And, and I think that that's, the truth about life is we don't get any say in the cards we're handed. Some people get silver spoons and some people don't. And that doesn't mean your life is going to be amazing. Cause I know many people have been very successful who are fucking miserable, miserable, miserable. And I know people who have nothing who are so happy because I think it's really about getting introspective about who you are. You know, I, I look at the pain I, I watched Oxycontin take my mother's life. I watched alcohol. Like she would, my mom would hide liter and half gallon bottles of vodka all over the house. Our, our, her bedroom was covered in those little orange pill bottles, all the pain meds, all the antipsychotics, all the drugs. And I would go to AA and rehab with her. We would visit her. I'd be in these rooms when I was 8, 10, 12 years old. And sometimes she'd look at me or my brothers and my sister and she'd be like, this is your fault. What? You can't carry that with you as a child, right? And that's what it was for me. I was looking at her life and going, well, my grandmother talks to her the same way. Mm -hmm. This makes sense to me. It's a perpetuation of this cycle. Did she overdose or was it just a general? It was just, oh yeah, I'm the one who called 911 the first time my mom overdosed and the second and the third. And by the time that I was, I think 22, she had been in hospital. She lost her legs, like the whole nine, man, those pills took everything from her. Right. And I, I look at my stepfather and how violent he was. His mother was the most unkind person I've ever known in my life. And she had foster children, Paul. I'd walk in this room and I'd see her do the most despicable. I don't want to say it because it doesn't need to be said again, but the most despicable things to these children, I would sit here and watch and see it and bear witness. And then I go, of course, that's why he's that way, right? This whole thing, this is, this is a continuation of pain, and and it's heartbreaking because the truth is, like, we all right now today have an ability to stop it. And many people are not because they're, ter- they're terrified of the reality that their life doesn't have to be what it 
is supposed to be according to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's so fucking painful to me because it's like you're one fucking decision away from everything about your whole world being different. Yeah, it's like watching people standing on train tracks going, "This is this is where I'm camping tonight." <laughs> like, buddy, there's a there's a fucking train. All you got to do is step a couple steps to the side. Totally different path. Nope, this is where I belong. This is what I know. It's so hard to watch. It's yeah. so hard to watch. I've seen so many people die from from drugs and alcohol or take their their lives and I don't know what it would have been like to be in their skin. Maybe there was no other way for them. Maybe the the negative thoughts or the trauma was just too much for them. I don't I don't know, but it's fucking hard to watch when you're like, man, you are I mean, that's where when I was 25, 26 years old, that's where I was. I was like, I, I understand why people take their own lives. The suffering is too much. The pain, it just, it hurts so much all the time. I, I've, I've said this many times. I felt like all of my life until the moment I made a decision to change, it just felt rainy. It could be beautiful and sunny outside and just be a cloud over me. Every single day, it always hurt. It always hurt to be an orphan. It always hurt to be lost in the world. It always hurt to be the dumbest kid in the school. It always hurt to be homeless and to be the kid that smelled bad. It always hurt to be now the obese guy, the fat dude, the guy who hooks up with girls from the internet for self-worth, the guy who drinks himself to sleep and gets stoned in the morning. It always hurt. And that's why when I was like ready to take my life, it was just like, maybe I'll get some fucking peace. And I mean, the greatest part about that is like, I'm still here. Divine intervention, God, universe. I don't fucking know, man, but like, I'm supposed to be here. And so I try to honor that every single day, but I, I get it when I hear about whether it be a celebrity or someone I know or a friends of a friend and they take their life. I get it. I go, I get it, man. Yeah. And that's not so I wish people would stop calling them selfish because they're not because you don't no. fucking get it. It's like, it's like calling the people that, that you know, jumped out of the buildings in nine 11. Oh, that was yeah. weak. So, that was selfish. Yeah. I mean, that, that's such an incredible way to phrase it because you're spot on because sometimes it does feel like you're on. I mean, I literally wrote in my book. I was like, I feel like I'm in my house that I burned down. Right. It feels like fire is just engulfing you all the time. And so there, there's, I don't know, there's safety, there's freedom in it. So let's let's talk about uh, the things that you're doing for uh, a living now. You got a, a podcast called uh, Think Unbroken. Uh, you're doing coaching, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, let, let's list the places where people can find you. I, you must be an amazing coach. Yeah, I, I you know I, the one thing I just try to do is teach people the things that I've been learning. And that's it. And I just tell people, I'm probably just one step ahead of you, but that's why I have a coach because that guy's one step ahead of me. And if we can just kind of follow suit together, we can create something amazing. Um, But yeah, Think Unbroken podcast, it's on all the things. um, And I'm on all the social media at Michael Unbroken. And my, you know, Paul, it happened because I'm, I'm a writer first. 
I've always been a writer ever since I was a little kid. I actually wrote a vampire rom-com when I was eight years old. Oh, my so God. I, I did. If you recall Vampire in Brooklyn, so yeah. they'd come out, and I had just taken this little notebook, and I started writing. Now, you got, again, what I'm about to say, I'm going to preface with this. Keep in mind, I grew up in the Mormon church. My mom found it and ripped it to shreds. Right. And so that was my that was my first piece of criticism as a writer. And (laughs) and and when I started coaching, it was this wasn't my intention. The only thing I was doing, I was writing, I was sharing blogs, I was sharing stuff that I thought would help people in the way that it was helping me. And then suddenly people would reach out and be like, hey, that thing that you wrote, it, it saved my life. Hey, that thing that you wrote, it made me want to show up today. I mean, it happens every day, like the messages and it's so Mm -hmm. fulfilling and beautiful. But the truth is, Paul, I don't save anybody's life. I never save nobody's life, but mine, I promise you that. But the tools are just there for the people that want to take them and hold on to them. And it may work for you. It may not. Cause like I'm straight up, like no excuses. Like let's figure this shit out. Right. Uh, Like I think like, I'm not going to coddle you. That's not what my job is. I just want to help you. And I think like for me, the greatest sense of self help that I've ever given was like getting out of my own fucking way. Mm. And so it's, it's an honor to be able to serve. It's an honor to be able to help people. It's an honor to be able to watch my brothers and my sister fucking flourish after all the chaos we've been through and people to come through these programs that I've put together from all this education and just go, I, I feel like I know who I am today. Dude, that's awesome. Thank you so much for for coming by. And wow, what a what a what a compelling story. I'm really glad our our paths crossed. Same. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you so much, my friend. I really really enjoyed that. Hope you hope you guys did too. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Let's jump into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Stretch Mark McGee. I believe that you were a villain in the Old West, if I'm not mistaken. She identifies as gay. She's 20. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was in junior high, about 16 years, when I was a junior in high school, about 16 years old, there was this one asshole that was always trying to get with me. After rejecting his many advances, he one day started grabbing my shoulders when he walked by my desk. This shoulder grabbing eventually turned into him sticking his hand down my shirt and touching my chest. 
people saw, because how could they not see something like that? But no one said anything. I never said anything. I'm 20 now. I have not let a man touch me since. Maybe it's totally pathetic and I'm overreacting, but that boy ruined the idea of men for me. Uh, she's never been physically abused or emotionally abused. Um, and I, you know, overreacting, it, I, I, I hate when people, um, especially when they do it to themselves, they try to qualify uh, what it is that, that they're feeling in terms of its validity. And, you know, it, you feel what you feel and... It's just adding another hurdle to processing things by saying, oh, I'm being a baby or I'm making too big of a deal of it. Uh, it can keep us so stuck. I did it for 30, 40 fucking years. Darkest thoughts. I often fantasize about having sex with my English professor. Well, she's not my professor anymore, but she was my professor for a couple of semesters. I'm a lesbian, and I know it's totally normal to fantasize about people, but I always feel guilty when I think about her when I masturbate because she is such a good friend of mine. I feel gross and icky, and just like I want to flush myself down the toilet. If you are going to flush yourself down the toilet, definitely take your shoes off. A lot of people will get hung up before you even get past the shoes, and then you got to call the plumber and he's like why are you standing in the toilet and you're like well i was thinking about fucking my english professor and i forgot to take my shoes off and he's like ah, totally get it darkest secrets everyone knows my business literally everyone my biggest secret was that i am a lesbian i had to give an impromptu speech in my speech class one day and my topic was if you could be any fictional character who would it be and why I had two minutes to prepare that speech. My dumbass ended up giving a speech on hot women. Women I think are hot and why I want a hot girlfriend. I was talking out of my ass because I was nervous. I was so embarrassed when I finished my speech because I just accidentally came out to my entire speech class. But hey, I passed with an A. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. The sexual fantasies that are most powerful to me are unfortunately the ones where I fantasize about forcing myself on a beautiful woman. I hate fantasizing about that, but nothing makes me orgasm harder. Sharing this does not make me feel any better or worse than I've already been feeling. Just a little ashamed, I guess. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my English professor that I think she's hot and that if she ever wants a good fuck, I'm right here. Well, you got to remember, she's your English professor, so you want to just change that up a little bit. and You just want to say, milady, if thou wilt. I don't even know what the fuck I'm saying. Milady, if thee care to get together, come hither. And then you do a little curtsy, and as you walk away, you show her your butthole. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for myself to stop fantasizing about ways that I could kill myself every fucking day. Have you shared these things with others? Fuck no. I haven't shared these things with others, exclamation point. For one, I don't have anyone to share these things with, and two, even if I did, they'd think I was a weird, rapey sex fiend. I... I have to disagree. I think a lot of people 
have sexual fantasies that make them uncomfortable. Um, and you might give somebody else a chance to open up to you. Um, I think a support group would be an awesome place for you to start to build that support network because you sound like a really sweet soul. How do you feel after writing these things down? Still feel numb like any other day, only this time I feel like I can breathe. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? If you're a bipolar lesbian like I am, welcome to the club. (laughs) Maybe that's the support group you start. This is from the love survey filled out by Deb, and she writes, I love working on my homestead. I've never felt peace. I have never felt peace after I've spent all day caring and building an environment for my animals. I have never felt peace. I think she might have meant to say, like I have after I spent all day. Because otherwise, why would she enjoy working on her homestead? Maybe she's trying to be competitive with Laura Ingalls. Oh my God, that is such a fucking old reference. You old man. You fucking geezer. You decrepit 100-year-old fucking loser. Was I a little harsh on myself? This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dupe. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. Uh, says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, zero exposure to anything even remotely risky, difficult, or bad to the point where I had zero skills to healthily cope with those things where I did eventually encounter them as an adult. I wonder if you had uh, helicopter parents. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My current boss frequently makes, quote, jokes about how much he'd love to see me drunk and that I seem like, quote, such a good girl, but he bets I, quote, have a bad side. Yeah, that's sexual uh, abuse, harassment, whatever you want to call it. I always get uncomfortable and try to deflect when he says these things, but he started to do this thing where he'll then put his hand uh, on my arm or my shoulder and tell me that he can tell I'm nervous and that I shouldn't look so worried. If it were a friend telling me these things, I would tell him to report it immediately. But me being in this situation now, I am coming up with all sorts of excuses not to say anything. This job is only temporary. I don't want to burn bridges with with the company. This boss is really young. It's not anything very major or physical, etc. I also worry on some deep, dark level that I actually enjoy the attention in some way. The couple of friends I've told have been putting almost constant pressure on me to speak up, so I'm starting to see why some people who are experiencing unwanted sexual advances in the workplace decide not to tell anyone. Because now I even feel more ashamed about it for not doing anything. I'm afraid all my friends see me now as a weak person and a bad feminist. And what is a a, a great example of the complexity of confronting and just how overwhelming it can it can feel. Um, You know, a lot of times the conundrum and the difficulty making decision about how to handle something afterwards can be as bad as the situation that we're struggling with the ripples 
Fuck the ripples. I hate the ripples. Except the wine ripple. Oh, I love my ripple. Uh, she is not sure if she has been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, she, I would say yes. Uh, she writes, my first boyfriend was very conservative and Christian, and I felt a constant sense of shame for thinking about and wanting to have sex. He said it was gross that I would listen to music with sexual lyrics and that I was obsessed with sex. One time we were making out and things went further than they'd ever gone with us and I ended up giving him a blowjob. He refused to kiss me afterwards and I felt so disgusting and ashamed. Five years later, I think how far I've come in being comfortable with the idea of sex, but I still worry if I'm obsessed with sex and even now I will fast forward through the sex scenes in movies because I feel too ashamed and uncomfortable to watch it and I'm worried about if I would enjoy watching it, quote, too much. Well, you know, I think a question to ask yourself is, is your interest in sex interfering with your functioning during the day? Not your guilt about it, but, you know, are you are you looking at you know, porn to the, uh, which clearly you're not, but if it, if it gets to the point where you are going against your moral compass and you know not showing up for friends you know blowing off work to hook up with a stranger stuff like that that's when i think it's time to say oh you know maybe maybe something is going on here that uh i need to change up but if it's just the part of your brain that's telling you that you're dirty um tell that part of your brain to go fuck itself, and then again, curtsy, wheel, butthole. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I also had a complicated relationship with Faith when I was dating my first boyfriend, and I can understand having complex feelings about what to think and feel about sex and how to make sense of it. I don't think of him as an abuser. I see him as having to navigate this incredibly complex religious experience in the best way he knew how, even though it left me hurt. You sound like a really compassionate person. Darkest Secrets. When my depression and anxiety are at its worst, there was absolutely nothing that felt good or right except for pacing the apartment where I lived alone to the point where I wore a circle into the carpeting. Also, within that time, I had noticed that at my job at the animal shelter, a lot of the dogs who spent time in the kennels will pace in a circle as a way to cope. It was so hard for me to watch that kind of suffering because I could relate to it so much. I eventually took my therapist's advice to quit that job and to only spend time with animals who don't need anything from me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I sometimes fantasize fantasize about converting people to atheism by seducing them and having sex with them, and they find my allure so powerful that they no longer feel the same pull towards Christianity that they did before. Thinking about this now, I think being a replacement for someone's religion would actually be a pretty stressful position to be in, though. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? This is my least favorite question that therapists ask. Words are hard, and they often don't say what I want them to say. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I wasn't so sensitive. I'm going to put this idea out there. What if you considered the fact that being sensitive is fucking awesome and a gift 
and instead wish that the world wasn't so insensitive. Just a thought, not trying to change what you feel or think. But I am asking that I now be your replacement for religion because I can handle it. Unlike you, I can handle being a religion. Have you shared these things with others? I told my current boyfriend that sex is a weird, heavy, shameful thing for me and have been met with support and lots of open conversation. When I left my job at the animal shelter, I shared with my coworkers and boss about how much the environment had negatively impacted my mental health and they were shocked and surprised, which makes me think I was hiding it much better than I thought I was for years. And that hiding it didn't make me a better employee, it just made me burn out much faster. How do you feel after writing these things down? I think for so long I felt young and sheltered and clueless, and writing down this stuff makes me feel like I actually have worked through some things. At least a few things, a little bit. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's okay to be a bit selfish and to try putting yourself first for a while by aggressively asking people, for exactly whatever need, space, time, etc., especially if you're wanting to die. Any comments to make the podcast better? The Get Help section of your website is helpful, but it's difficult for me and a lot of people to call a hotline. It would be really helpful for me to see more website online resources listed. Uh, A good one to go to is uh, helpguide.org. And... um, and the website uh, in the rooms.org. It's .org or .com. I believe both. But they have a lot of online meetings, especially 12-step meetings. Uh, so that would be a good place. And, of course, always our, our sponsor, betterhelp.com uh, slash mental is a, is a great place to look for stuff. This is from the love survey filled up by LLF, and they write, I love when the seasons change, how the leaves turn beautiful shades of orange, red, and brown and fall from the trees. When it's winter, I don't like the colder snow, but I'm grateful for the shutdowns at work when the roads get too icy. Spring brings me so much joy because I love the rain. The smell and the sound calms me, and if there's a, stu- and if there's a thunderstorm, that makes it even better. Then finally out comes the sun for summertime. I love the warmth it gives me. The best even happen around that the best evens happen around that time and the wonderful memories I make last a lifetime. I think there's a typo in there. I'm gonna cast you to hell for that typo. It was all going smooth. Tell that fucking typo. You had to bring the podcast down. You had to ruin it for everybody. To hell. And again, on your way to hell, curtsy, wheel, butthole. This is a Shame and Secrets. <laughs> it might have been the most awkward pronunciation of this survey ever. This is the Shame and Secrets survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself Jagmund Royd. He is in his 50s, identifies as straight. He says, I'm not sure what some of the other selections are, but I am willing to learn, LOL. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment, was the victim of sexual abuse, and never reported it. He writes, 
wow, where do I start? At four years old, I remember playing doctor with a little girl who lived next door. Uh, She was seven, playing strip poker. Or no, I guess then when he was seven, playing strip poker with an older brother who, of course, stacked the deck. Uh, Given porn magazines around eight or nine, um, being asked how animals make babies and laughed and teased about my answers, an uncle constantly commenting on women's breasts. This could have been strangers to relatives. In elementary school, the principal and gym teacher made all the boys take a shower after gym class as they watched. We all had erections. They stepped out of the room, and then there were older boys who came in and were watching and laughing at us as well. At the same school, there were some other boys who invited me and a friend, invited us to join their club. The initiation was to drop our pants and show our privates. There are several other examples. I don't remember more details, but don't seem... Uh, but don't seem how, I guess he means, but don't see how there isn't more trap deep in my brain somewhere that has not come out yet. With all this, I became very confused and had an unhealthy drive for information. When I was in the third or fourth grade, while my family was visiting my cousins over Christmas break, they got a movie camera and we decided to make a vampire movie. There was a scene where me and a female cousin had to kiss and lay on a bed. I remember not wanting to do it, but was convinced to do so. This all ended up in an incest relationship with that same cousin in our teenage years. It was not uncommon for my dad to parade around the house in his tidy whities It didn't matter who was in the house. This was a complete embarrassment. I never wanted to have friends over. I feel stupid. I've went through my whole life uh, knowing that something was wrong, shamed and embarrassed about the abuse, and believed it was normal or something you just ignored or didn't happen or wasn't bad. At the same time, plotting my response if the news did get out, thinking how could I work a job and have a family and this be the reason for my depression. I thought it was because I couldn't reach my goals. If I would make enough money, all my problems would be solved. I was living the big lie. Any positive experiences with abusers? In a large family, two parents and six kids, and too many extended family members to mention, there was not a lot of money. Yes, there's lots of great memories, playing sports, games, camping trips, and just having each other's backs through the very difficult times. I've been in therapy for the last two years while trying to get the meds to a correct balance. I was in a business relationship with my older brother who was the strip poker dealer. I was using pot and on a cocktail of meds prescribed by my shrink. I got them mixed up, which is never good, and we got into an argument. I can He's talking about his brother. I confronted him about the sex abuse. He denied it, but did ask who else was in the room. I believe police call this an inadvertent confession. Um, darkest thoughts. As I listen to the moving stories of others, it is comforting to know that I am not alone. The hard part is that I am blessed to have a wife of 28 years with three adult children. My wife has been so wonderful and supportive. I've not been able to work for about two years. I'm a stay-at-home husband. It's very good work if you can find it, lol. She's picked up the torch and has made up the loss of income. At one point, she was working two full-time jobs to make ends meet. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I can't look at other women 
without having some very disturbing visions in my mind. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I am sorry to those I have hurt. Forgive me for those I have hurt and need to move on with the focus of health. I forgive you so I can move on and focus on my health. Go fuck yourself to those who are close to me and can't accept sorry, can't forgive, and can't accept forgiveness. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to stop the constant conversations in my head. I want a clear vision for what's next in my life and to have it now. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. This is from the love survey filled out by Betty fucking Crocker. I never knew that was her middle name. I would have never made her cakes. Recently, my husband has started started to cuddle me when he wakes up early. This is a new development as a result of his insomnia. He's been having trouble sleeping due to work and the pandemic. He will wait in bed until he hears me stir, and then he will slide over and hold me. Or sometimes he reaches a hand out to see if I'll wake and grab it back. I especially find this tactic cute because my grandparents say they hold hands in their sleep like otters, so it reminds me of them. While I wish my husband could get the sleep he needs, I love this new routine in the morning. I've been depressed my whole adult life, and when I feel sad and sluggish in the afternoon, I just think about my morning in bed cuddling with my husband. It helps me feel better and like everything is going to be okay. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself struggling to find peace. Um, She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s. Uh, She says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment and then writes, I guess, maybe a little dysfunctional at the same time as being stable and safe, exclamation point. Uh, yeah, this, this, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? This is, this is definitely, uh, intense. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported. Uh, she writes, oh my God, so many times, where do I start? The first time something happened, I was walking through the primary school behind my house, going to the milk bar to get milk for my mom, as I had done many times before. On my way back through the school with the milk, a young man approached and started talking to me. He lured me to the side of the school building next to the tennis court and raped me. I felt such intense pain like I had never felt before in my life. It was like I was being impaled right through to the top of my head with his every move. I could hardly breathe with his forearm on my throat. I would look to my right and focus on the shiny silver, glistening, change that I had dropped onto the grass as he pushed me to the ground. It distracted me from the feeling of the loose gravel stones chafing under my bottom and the grunting noises he was making. Then, at some point, it was like the pain just stopped. Everything stopped. The sounds he made, the pain, just numbness in the sunshine reflecting on the coins and the leaves moving on the nearby trees. 
I looked at my red hand and white fingers as it tightly gripped the wire fence that outlined the tennis court where I have great memories playing tennis with my cousin. Everything was in slow motion and felt like I was there for hours. Then, ever so slowly, someone turned up the volume and I was back, feeling the heaviness on me and hearing the final exclamation he made before he stopped moving. His breath was hot and smelt of rum. He was heavy as he lay on me, shuddering occasionally. As he stood, pulling his pants up, looking down at me on the ground, he told me I was just too beautiful. I don't know how, but I got to my feet, grabbed the milk, and got away from him as quick as I could. He yelled he knew where where I lived, and if I told anyone, he would kill my parents. I was totally confused at what had just happened. I somehow composed myself, and scared of his threats, didn't tell my parents until a few days later. I started by telling them that the man had tried to grab me in the school with threats to kill them if I told. Obviously, this freaked my parents out. They were confused as to why they never saw me distressed. I believe that out of parental shock and fear, they told me that if this man tries to grab anyone else, then it would be my fault because I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell them the rest. I couldn't. It would make things worse. I was 11. The next day, it was like nothing had happened, and my mind blocked out the rest of the untold event. Wow. She's been physically and emotionally abused. Um, every time... Uh, nowadays, I am the abuser of myself. I rape myself over and over every day with food. Every time I tell myself to not eat or limit myself with my emotions. Every time I shut down and not let anyone in, especially my husband and my psychologist. Shame and disappointment are huge issues for me, so any chance I get to confirm these notions, it is magnified in haste. With my self-harm, every time I cut myself or rub soap or shampoo into my eyes because I don't like what I see in the mirror, every time I think, hope, and long for pain to happen in some way just to prove that I deserve it, to confirm that that's all I'm worthy to feel or should feel with my thoughts, Every time I listen to the familiar, damning, damning, demoralizing, degrading voice, and in parentheses, Paul, is this what you mean when you say intrusive thoughts? Uh, I, I actually think of intrusive thoughts more as, um, uh, I tend to, like what you're describing, I tend to think of as like negative self-talk, whereas to me, intrusive thoughts I think of as like, oh my God, I'm, I'm on this roof, what if, you know, I can't stop myself from throwing myself off or you know what if I push that baby in front of a bus things that we that we don't want to do but our brain is like freaking out saying you might do that um, every time I listen to this familiar damning voice uh, it seems to follow me around like a dog in heat every time I'm a hypocrite when it comes to what I tell other people, what positive good things I see in them, and what opposite judgments I tell about myself, I'm sure there's more shit things I do, I just can't think or recognize them at the moment. Any positive experiences 
with the abusers. With the strangers, no, though I do wonder where they are now and what they're doing, whether they remember what they did to me or remember me at all. And there were a lot more instances of sexual abuse. Um, I just um, chose not to not to read them. It, it's uh, it's already <laughs> pretty pretty fucking heavy to uh, to read this. Darkest thoughts, wanting to hurt myself all the time, thinking of suicide too often wishing I would be raped again by someone or by many, wanting myself in vulnerable situations where it could happen. Thinking when I see a stranger on the street, wishing I had the guts to approach them for sex, but never ever having any desire whatsoever of cheating on my husband. Darkest secrets. I have contacted brothels to have someone be rough with me, but I've never gone through with it, only inquired. I watch rape porn or rape scenes and try to experience or refeel the feelings again because they are fucking too familiar and known to me, and I find myself shamingly getting off on it. I hate when my husband tells me I'm beautiful. I hate my husband touching my body. I dissociate while having sex with my husband. I enjoy reaching orgasm while masturbating. It always felt wrong and dirty to masturbate because of strict religious upbringing. Then now lately, to keep touching while it's so sensitive till it feels painful. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Rape fantasies. Uh, sharing that makes me feel dirty, deserving, and confirming that I fantasize my trauma. It's so fucked. It confuses me so much. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? No, I am not okay. Yes, I am struggling. Yes, I am fucked up. Yes, I am trying. I am trying every second of every day to be a little less than the second before. What, if anything, do you wish for? For life not to be such an overwhelming struggle every day to be self-confident enough to accept and be at peace with myself. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared my school rape with some people, including my parents and sister. My brothers do not know yet. My parents took it okay, but it's not a thing that is spoken of again yet. My husband knows about the school rape in detail, but I won't go into detail about the gang rape uh, with him. He took the school rape as best as he can. He struggles with my whole therapy situation because I don't tell him anything which is a problem in itself. I know. I'm trying to work on it and open up to him more, but my shame stops me. My psychologist knows everything. He's the best. How do you feel after writing these things down? This is a work in progress for me. I've recently begun to present my lived experience through mental health presentations and education workshops, and completing this survey helps. I've taken such things on and the desire to not let my trauma and all my pain be for nothing, that a positive can come out of this trauma somehow. It helps me get through my own therapy and can sometimes be extremely difficult and triggering, but the more I speak, the quieter my unhealthy coping unhealthy coping strategies and thoughts should become, I hope. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? 
Everyone who answers this question seems to say the same thing. Talk to someone. Speak up. You are not alone. There might be some truth in this. I'm trying to speak up. Thank you so, so much for that. As painful as that is to to read, uh, you know, the, the beauty inside that is the that survivor part of you, that glimmer of light that hasn't been snuffed out, that you are still trying to advocate for yourself and hold, holding on to that belief, which I believe is true, that, that we can and do heal and we can find meaning in our lives and purpose in our lives um, through processing the stuff that happened to us. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves Paul Gilmartin. And uh, they write, my cat, she's just turned two. Every time a doctor or therapist asks me if there's anything in life that makes me happy, the answer is my cat. She maybe has separation anxiety because I can't go to the bathroom without letting her in so she can sit on my lap while I'm on the toilet. I haven't really felt happy in years, but when she snuggles with me, I feel like everything is okay. Oh, that is so sweet. And then I wanted to end on that because I wanted you to go away with the image of a lady and her cat on the toilet, which was the name of my first album. Actually, it was called The Lady and the Cat on the Toilet. Boy, some of that shit was fucking intense. Intense to read, and I'm sure intense to hear, and I can't even imagine what that was like to live through. I'm so grateful for those of you that take that deep plunge into the into the past and um, express what it is that you're feeling or thinking or what you experienced. It's... Um, I'm really grateful for it, and um, I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And never forget that uh, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.